Hello, and welcome to Square in the Circle. On this episode, I'm joined with Amos Fox, an Army officer and PhD candidate at the University of Reading. He has written and published for the Rusi Journal, Small Wars, and most recently for the War on the Rocks. His research and writing focus are on the theory of war and warfare, proxy war, and urban warfare. He's been featured on numerous podcasts and has his own called Revolutions and Military Affairs. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program are of my own and of the guests participating in each episode. They do not represent the views of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, or any other organization. The content is for education and information purposes. Well, all right, sir. Well, again, you know, it's it, it's it's great to you know talk to you, and I really appreciate your time. You know, I'm a huge fan of yours. Um, I, I I love the the material that you you know you push out your publications and your podcast is is awesome. Highly recommend it to you know all my peers. You know, to to read your material, to listen to your podcast. You know, as an instructor at the Captain's Career Course, and um, you know, I'd always hey, this is a great article. You need to read this about MDO or or precision. Um, and from a force management standpoint, um, you know, for this podcast, you know, I think it's, I think it's, uh, you know, imperative that we talk about war and war fighting because, you know, as force managers, you know, we have to expand our, our width and, and our, and our depth across different, you know, different areas other than, you know, under, you know, Pentagonese and just requirements and systems and processes, because, you know, we, as change managers, you know, we, you know, we build the army, we change the army, but we absolutely, you know, we need to know how the army fights. Um, so with that, sir, you know, again, you know, I really appreciate coming on, coming on the net and talk to me about war and, and war fighting, um, for that, sir, I know you had a, uh, a recent publication in the war on the rocks. So I was wondering if, uh, you wanted to kick that off, sir. And we talk about siege warfare for a little bit. Yeah. The, uh, so thanks for, for having me come on, Matt. I appreciate it. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to chat with you. I I've always appreciated your, uh, your messages and your your dialogue that we've had over the course of I don't know how long it's been a couple of years now, so thank you for that, and uh, thanks for the uh, the kind words about uh, just the the contributions. I think it's important. I'll talk to the the paper in just a second, but I think it's important to as a professional, right, and as part of a profession that uh, we professionals um, take the time to give back to the inst- institution and also think about uh, what the in- institution does and thinks. Um, and think about it in a critical way and not just a let's just do what doctrine says way, because in many cases, uh, doctrine uh, sometimes is the easy button or it's just the let's continue doing what we've been doing uh, solution to things. And so I think it's always important to question what we're doing um, and look at things from a different perspective. And that's what I've tried to do. I don't Anytime I've sat down to write an article, especially probably the last five years or so, I've always sat down and said, okay, there's this thing I want to write about. Let me look at it from a slightly different angle um, because I don't want to write the same article that's already been written, you know, 78 times. I want to write something slightly different. And so uh, that's kind of been my approach because I think it's, again, like I said, I think it's critical as, as professionals that we we honestly uh, critique our institution, not in a negative way, um, because, you know, like we're trying to make it better. And that's always been the position that I've approached things from. And so all that to say, sieges is one of the things that I think is critically important uh, in warfare today that is uh, generally overlooked. And it's overlooked for, you know, who knows, there's probably a million reasons. 
one of which is just, you know, when you say the word siege, I think people's minds immediately drift to like, you know, knights and, and castles and, you know, you're on the countryside somewhere in England uh, throwing rocks at a big wall. But that's not where sieges are today. Today, uh, so I've just finished putting together a data set for the, the book that I'm writing. Um, and I, there's a chapter in there on sieges that, I've, that I'm writing. And so the paper that I published in War on the Rocks the other day um, on sieges and on urban warfare and related to Israel and what's going on in, in Gaza uh, it was pulled a lot from the data that I had generated for that. And so as part of that research, I found that there's been 60 sieges um, that have occurred since the end of the Cold War to today, right? And I think it was four of those are still ongoing, actually. there's, Or maybe it was two, two or four. But either way, they're, they're in Africa. And I would, I would say there's probably more like on the verge of occurring, right? So with what's going on in Avdivka right now in Ukraine, that's potentially going to tip that way. And then who knows what happens in, in Gaza. Like, I think right now it's just hard to get a read on really anything that's going on because the news is so disjointed. Um, and, and the reporting that coming in is, is again, as you know, first reports are always wrong uh, to some degree. And so I'm sure there's plenty of, not plenty, I'm sure there are sieges uh, in the works. Um, and I think in many cases, sieges develop. It's not necessarily a plan like, hey, let's go in and do this siege, right? It's it's a natural response, right? So a weaker actor, actor will often find um, urban environments very conducive to uh, offsetting the the skill and the acumen and the technology of, of an aggressor, right? And so they'll fall back into an urban area. And by virtue of falling into an urban area, you know, going in and clearing a city is very challenging. And it takes a lot of people and it takes a lot of resources and it takes a lot of time. Uh, whereas if you just encircle that city and then find spots where you think they're at and then just start pounding those spots right um you can in many cases accelerate theoretically accelerate the defeat of that adversary however um reality has shown that that's not necessarily the case and so um that's that's the crux of that article i just uh lay out some of the findings so 60 sieges of those 60 sieges uh the aggressor wins 61 percent of the time the defender wins 30 something percent of the time uh, but then also, uh, the what I found really interesting was on the state actor versus non-state actor versus proxy aspect of things. The state actor lost generally up front if the siege was less than a month, and then they lost if the siege was longer than a year. But inside the one month to twelve month mark, states won eighty. I think it was eighty-two percent of the time, and so that was an interesting finding. Is I work through that, and so it's almost uh, it almost benefits a state to try and prolong the siege to the point where, like, okay, now we're in the six month spot. Let's try and ram this thing through and get it done. And I think a lot of that is surprise on the front end um, can cause the state to get uh, overwhelmed and defeated quickly, especially against an actor that's more agile than than a state actor necessarily might be. And then on the far end of that, at the twelve month and beyond period, uh, states I think start running into problems of uh, continued will, right? So um, whether it's political will or domestic will, people are like, oh, you guys are killing too many people. You need to step it back or whatever the case may be, right? And so um, I think that that, I haven't been able to discern with any kind of preciseness, right? But that's generally the assumption that I've pulled away from that. And then I, I think on your background, sir, you were in Iraq during the clearing of, of Mosul during that 
during that time yeah. it was like i think nine months nine or ten months i think just under a year for the iraqis and in coalition to actually clear mazul um you know block by block yeah and absolutely just yeah just so grind. The, um yeah so the battle battle of mosul went from october of 2016 to july officially to july of 2017 mm-hmm. but it really continued through august of 2017 even though it was officially announced uh, over in July. Uh, and I got there in June with, um, first armor division. I worked in the G five. We took over as the, the foundational element of the, the land component command, uh, there in Baghdad that ran the land fight. And so I caught the last couple months of that. And, um, yeah, I mean, at the, <laughs> at the end, uh, the city was, was basically rubble and there was almost a million displaced persons. And, uh, I forget the dollar amount, but just, just this astronomical dollar amount to rebuild the city and everything. So yeah, very, uh, very eye-opening experience, uh, especially, you know, it's, it, you know, there's different experiences, uh, working, whether you're on the ground, uh, at the forward edge of things, or if you're back at the headquarters. And so, you know, I saw the, the forward edge of things, uh, as a Lieutenant in Iraq in like 2005, um, you know, and so I saw that aspect, but it was really like a, a very um, eye-opening experience seeing things from the land component command headquarters side of things too. And so it's like I personally, professionally speaking, felt like being able to do that job after having been on the line for two deployments as a lieutenant and a captain um, was very beneficial because it gave me a very, you know, very, very much more broad view of things. Yeah, yes, sir. All right, just uh, just changing things up a little bit, sir. Um Mm-hmm. just curious the the overall title that you know the tank is dead right um mm-hmm. you know that that's came about um back in like the the 70s during like the yom kippur war you know the, the tank is dead and then it you know died down yep. and then you you know fast forward in time nagorno karabakh and you know the the azerbaijanis just completely just decimate the armenians and all of their armored you know um firepower that they that they have their air defense um their sensors just completely just decimate their their formations in in that little little region um yeah and then you see it also you know in the the kickoff of ukraine um where you have you have commentary about you know that the tank is the tank is dead but then you also on the flip side have commentary where no 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 the tank is not being dead just the you know the ukrainians or the armenians or you know whoever you know the israelis back in 1970s just weren't doing combined arms maneuver weren't incorporating the tank right so i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that sir and like how you see things with armored in in war now and in future war yeah so clearly i'm i'm biased being an armor officer (laughs) but uh i try not to inject that bias into uh into into my assessment i don't think that the tank is dead i think that the the bad tactics uh are dead right so um and bad tactics i think is is what you hit on not doing combined arms uh warfare effectively right and so combined arms is about uh, and this is where i think the the use of the word joint in many cases, I think gets in the way of the idea because when we say joint, what we're really saying is combined arms, right? Um, and so, applying everything that you have in all the domains should be the first 
point at which you step off with uh, with with war fighting, and if you don't do that, and if you don't prepare for that, and if you don't have, or if you don't have the ability to fight in, you know, like the air domain, effectively necessarily, you need to have something on the ground that can counter that domain effectively, right? And so uh, that that I think is why you saw this big one of the reasons I think you saw this big uptick in tank kills early in both Nagorno Karabakh. Uh, and also Ukraine uh, in 2022. But I think that the, the, the other point that needs to be remembered is that the terrain, for instance, uh, doesn't favor the tank in many cases. And that is something that is critically important to understand. Some folks, I forget who it was I heard the other day and I read, but somebody was like, oh, there's, I think it was, I was reading Robert Satino uh, when I, for, my, for my podcast on uh, the death of the Wehrmacht. And then in that book, he says something to the effect of there is no bad tank country. And I think that it takes a a person that's not a tanker to say that because as a tanker, there is bad tank country and uh, mountainous terrain, uh, terrain with, you know, very few routes in and out. uh, That's extremely restrictive, you know, heavily wooded terrain, very marshy terrain, all this different types of terrain. Um, can make a tank extremely vulnerable, extremely vulnerable, especially if it's not properly covered with infantry, doesn't have adequate indirect fire support, doesn't have some sort of uh, reconnaissance working for it, right? Um, and so if you're not doing those things, if you're not applying the arms of combined arms effectively in coordination with the tank, then the tank looks, you know, very, like very like a very antiquated thing. And so that's what you saw with the with the Armenians uh, when they were fighting Azerbaijan, right? And the terrain there was horrible for the tank, especially when it wasn't, you know, uh, used correctly with the other elements of combined arms. And in Ukraine, you saw something very similar too, right? A lot of the ground that they were coming through, the Russians were coming through early on, was very, uh, very restrictive in terms of both wooded areas, watery areas, um, and then just getting into urban areas, right? Tanks are not all that great in urban areas. Unless you're just happy to go in and just willy-nilly slam everything with uh, with main gun round, which you know, if you're adhering to the uh, international humanitarian law, that's not necessarily uh, something you're always gonna gonna be doing, right? And so I say all that to say the tank is not dead. There are just times and places that the tank is not opportune. It's just like anything else, right? There's you know times when infantry is not very useful. If you're out in the open and you're trying to move fast and quick having dismounted infantry, light infantry guys trying to keep up is less than ideal. That doesn't mean light infantry is dead. Far from it, you know. Light infantry is extremely important. It just everything uh, is tied to conditions and uh, in components, right, and the situation. And so I think that's important to think about uh, when we think about this. And to look to the future, I think that the argument remains the same. I think a lot of uh, the arguments for how things like AI and and drones and sensors and all this uh, is a bit premature. I think it's uh, not going to be developed to the degree that we th- that that some of the futurists think it will be. I also think that there's very few countries uh, that are actually able to afford a lot of the stuff we're talking about. And really, there's only a couple countries: the U.S. being one, China perhaps, or not even perhaps, certainly being the other Russia, who knows what the hell is going to happen with Russia once this war with Ukraine uh, comes to a close, Um, you know, and some other folks sprinkled in here and there. And so the idea that, you know, there's going to be this, this dominant transparent battlefield in which drones are swarming around killing tanks all over the place 
I think is it sounds cool and it sells a lot of books and it gets people to listen to your speaking engagements, but I don't think it's necessarily tied to reality because it's uh that stuff's extremely expensive and a lot of nations, uh, a lot of states do not have the the funds or do not don't uh, put the funds to their defense budgets that would help them, you know, get to that level of uh, sophistication. Yeah. Yes, sir. And then you know. To go back to sensors and, and, and drones, um, you know, part of that tank is dead, um, you know, argument is, you know, you look back at Nagorno-Karabakh and the Azerbaijanis using, you know, loitering munitions and other types of drones just to take out all of the armored armored formations. Um, do, you, do you think drones are, you know, a, a game changer at all? Do you think there's like any sort of utility with with drones or is it just a, another cool like capability that, you know, that we have um, you know, in the beginning of, you know, yeah. going to Karbach, you know, I, I guess I would fall my I'd fall into that futurist type, um, you know, group. Um, but, you know, my, my views have evolved and I, you know, I thought going to Karbach, wow, you know, we can use drones, you can use sensors you can do more with, with less, right? Kind of goes back to like yeah. Rumsfeld's, uh, you know, his slogan. And transformation. Movement, yeah, 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 kind of going back with, with that, sir. So I'd just be curious, you know, is there any utility with drones or? or... Yeah, so I think there is, but it's, I, I think that there's this, this folks forget about the challenge response uh, dynamic. I had a, uh, uh, when I was in the command of general staff college, my history professor, Ethan Rafuse, he's, still there. He's terrific. He, uh, you know, he always talked about that. And so there was this uptick of innovation, right? And everybody's like, Oh my God, this is a game changer. Uh, but then right behind that is the, the, the catch up, right? There's always the catch up. And so the innovator is always going to be a step ahead. However, very few things, history has proven very few things actually prove decisive in that regard. Right. And so they may be cool and, 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 and make everybody go, Oh, wow you know, up front and early on, but really like realistically, you know, they don't have much of an impact. And I think drones in many cases uh, fall into this category. And I think a lot of times too, drones are um, something that create a point specific effect, right? They don't have a large scale effect. Drones are expensive. Um, You know, if we're talking, and again, it depends on the context, right? So if you're talking small, and this is one of the papers that I published last year, was it's called uh, something to the effect of war, war in a fishbowl, right? And so these small little theater wars like Nagorno-Karabakh and like the Donbass campaign in 2014, 2015 in, in Ukraine, um, where, you know, the Russian BTG looked like this game-changing formation. And I thought that at the time, too. I was like, holy cow, this thing is terrific. And I still think the idea of the BTG is sound. I just think... It, it, there was a lot of holes that, that came about with it with uh, the, the Russia's invasion in 2022. However, going back to the wars in the fishbowl, I think like Nagorno-Karabakh, war in a fishbowl, right? Uh, Donbass campaign, war in a fishbowl. And what I mean by that is you have this very small theater, right? And so the effect is amplified uh, far greater, right? And so it takes a smaller element to create a big effect than it does if you expand that thing out and try and apply that same concept in a bigger theater, right? And so the analogy I use in the paper is the fishbowl, right? If you throw a pebble in a fishbowl, the effect is going to be pretty big. But if you throw that same pebble or a slightly bigger pebble or hell, even a rock into a lake, the effect that that thing creates 
is far less than what that pebble was when you threw it in the fishbowl. And so not everything is scalable. That's the point. And, you know, so you see this massive, amazing effect in this small theater. But then when you take that and you say, all right, well, now instead of, I don't know, I don't know the force structure or the force size that was uh, being, being fought there in Nagorno-Karabakh, but let's say, you know, like, let's take that and let's now put this out in the field and, you know, in Ukraine with this huge, you know, 200,000 uh, soldier invading army against this other, nobody really knew. We don't know the numbers of the Ukrainians and what they had at the defense, right? And then let's try and apply that same concept, right? This the same drone concept. And it doesn't work. It doesn't have the same effect. And it's because that isn't scalable. The cost of scaling that, mm-hmm. at least right now, is so astronomical too. Uh, not to mention munitions, right? Um, the munitions we've seen, especially smart munitions, run out rather quickly when you start using them uh, as your main source of attack, right? And so I just, uh, I don't think it's something, at least right now, for the foreseeable future, that's going to be uh, game changing. I don't really think it'll ever be game changing. It's just another one of those aspects of this arc and the challenge response dynamic. And, you know, like the past uh whatever uh the past five years or, or, or so everybody's been like oh man drones 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 but at the same time everybody's also been like how do we counter this right and i know that that's something we're working on and so if we're working on it certainly everybody else is working on it too and so um i just think it's another it's going to be you know another thing that's you know it, it does certain things in, in certain environments really well right if you get in a congested environment and a drone swarm shows up, you're probably screwed. <laughs> uh, but if you're not in a con- uh, congested environment, uh, the, the, the effect is going to be not all that great. And it's also going to be um, just, you know, very co- cost prohibitive, uh, despite uh, what a lot of folks think it may or may not be. Yeah, yes, sir. All right, just switching to uh, the war in the Ukraine. What's like, uh, yeah. what has stood out to you? Like, what's some of the lessons you've identified um, that, you know, we think we should really focus in on, we should capture, you know, that, that's, that stood out to you, sir. Yeah, I think the, uh, so the first thing that jumped out at me when this whole thing got going, um, was Ukraine's ability to galvanize support almost right out the gate. It was amazing. Um, their, their IO campaign, it was almost, it was almost, uh, like too perfect. And I don't say that in any kind of negative way, cause I really do admire how they, you know, how they got this thing going and got support going as quick as they did. But you think about it, right? There was several things that came out right away. There was the, uh, the woman who told the, uh, the Russian soldier, take these seeds so that when you die in Russia, you know, sunflowers grow, uh, where you lay, you know? So there was that, there was the, uh, the ghost of Kiev. There was, uh, um, you know, St. Javelin, uh, all these different little things that kept coming out, you know, Snake Island, and even if you, yeah, Snake Island, that was another one. Yeah, that was, I mean, that was like day two of the the invasion, you know? And so there was that. And then it was interesting because when I thought back, so I published a paper a couple of years ago on the battle of, the second battle of Donetsk Airport. And one of the narratives that came out of that was they called the, uh, the defenders of the airport, the cyborgs, right? The cyborgs of Donetsk Airport. And I was like, man, these guys really have this, uh, this information operations game down pretty well. And so that was a big thing um, because that really, I think, uh, 
got the international community to jump on board and say, you know what, we're with these guys. Um, and so I think that's something that's not necessarily something we uh, have to worry about just because, the, you know, like the, the, the strategic dynamic is completely different. And uh, we are the, the supporter in many cases to people. Um, but I think that that was just a huge takeaway. And then again, the uh, so like everybody else, I think the the effect of anti-tank weapons early on was uh, was really impressive or anti-armor. Uh, weapons was really uh, impressive in the way that Ukrainians used them. I also thought too, you know, it's it's so funny. We talk about in the U.S. Army, we talk about uh, you know physical fitness and not having facial hair and all these things. And you would see highlights on the news, you know, and it's like some guy that had been like a banker the day before, and he's you know fairly rotund, and he's got a cigarette hanging out his mouth with a beard. And his helmet's like barely, buck, you know, not buckled. And he runs around the corner and it you know, fires this anti-tank weapon and hits a Russian tank and blows it up. And so I think uh, the important thing to think about is uh, what is it you're trying to get with your with your force and not what appearance are you trying to project with your force, you know? And so as we think about, and this I think is probably kind of applicable to what it, to what you do, uh, in the force management management world, like when we think about how to grow forces in different fields uh, where we don't necessarily have a lot of expertise expertise today, um, you know, like in the cyber cyber world or um, other stuff like that, you know, it's okay to have maybe different standards for different people because, or you know, for different jobs because they don't necessarily need to be doing the same thing somebody else does. And so that was a big thing, a small thing, but it had like a big, uh, it, it was a small thing in the war, you know, but it was like something that played out big in my mind. Cause every time I'd see, you know, a guy probably out of shape in his mid thirties with a cigarette hanging out his mouth, you know, launching another toe or a, another, uh, in-law or, a, you know, a javelin at something. I was always like, man, you know, it's, it's not about what you look like. It's about what you can do. And then uh, I think the other big thing is just, um, again, as as an armor officer, logistics are a huge, uh, huge deal in the world that I live in and work in. And so you really saw how Russia fell on its face early on. And this goes back to the comments on the BTG. I think conceptually the BTG is a very sound idea um, just from like the organization itself, not how it's cold from like the rest of brigades and put together ad hoc. I don't think that that's a good idea. And you see that that's not a good idea because logistics quickly fall apart because of the ad hoc nature of that organization. But that was a big, uh, a big thing that I noticed was, you know, like it, it just blew my mind that this whole thing just fell apart. And again, that, uh, I think that's par- partially, part of a you know a flawed strategy that russia came into the operation with too where they thought you know they're gonna get to kiev they're gonna overthrow kiev and whatever it was 72 hours and 96 hours and you know it's gonna be a short easy fight they didn't tell their soldiers they were going in to you know do all this stuff so there's a lot of there's a lot of bad strategy that goes into the the logistics problems that they have but it became quite apparent there and then uh really those are those are like the big things um there's a lot of other stuff too that a lot of people have already, you know, commented on that I'm not going to continue to beat a dead horse on, but those are the big things that I thought that are important to note. Gotcha, sir. Okay. Um, so future, future of warfare, 
where do you see it? Do you see it as combined arms maneuver? Do you see it as more of a tradition-based in siege warfare? Where do you see it in you know the next few decades? Or... Yeah, so I think what you're going to see is, again, you've got this growth, um, exponential growth in economic strength of a couple of states, right? And then everybody else kind of lagging behind um, and not kind of lagging behind. They're just in different categories altogether. And I think that that's going to create this demand, this drive to over technologically um, imbue, you know, certain militaries such as our own with all these technological things. But then at the same time, like our our partners aren't necessarily going to be able to keep up with us. So there's going to be this continual lag that we have. And you see that now when we talk about interoperability with, with NATO, you know, when I was in S3, we went to Poland and that was one of the huge things the whole time we were there. And when I was in fourth S fab, um, that was one of the big things when we talked about working with our partners in Europe was this problem with interoperability. And so I think that there's always going to be this, this catch up game that's trying to happen. But I say all that to say, because so many other people won't be able to keep up with that technological advancement, war and warfare will not be the transparent battlefield killer robots, autonomous systems, you know, robotics and all these things, uh, human machine teams running around out there uh, doing this big robot on robot fighting. Uh, There may be some robot on robot fighting, but then also like what happens when all the robots are dead? Do you throw up your hands and say, we're done? No, you probably say, all right, now it's time for the meat shield, right? And you send in the people. And then you fight until you've chewed up the meat shield. And so I think uh, you've got that component. And then as Anthony King has pointed out uh, in his book, Urban Warfare uh, in the 21st Century, and then a couple of other papers that he's published lately, you know, the size of armies are getting smaller, right? Yeah. State, state armies are constricting and getting a lot smaller. And by virtue of that, uh, you know, in the past – you know, urban areas got consumed in fronts, right? We fought in fronts and it was just this big mass wall of, of, of army smashing into another big mass wall of army and cities in many cases just got consumed in all that. And they just were, were minor uh, elements of consideration. But today, because of the fact that we don't have huge armies any longer and because the urban areas offer uh, a lot of protection. And like I said before, they offset a lot of the asymmetric advantages of actors with a lot more money. You know, weaker actors will seek refuge in urban areas to offset all those uh, exquisite things that uh, other folks can bring to bear. Same thing too with pre- uh, precision munitions, right? Urban areas, uh, in many cases, like they uh, don't exactly obviate, but they somewhat. Um, dilute the effectiveness of precision munitions because you know something may be precise uh, but accuracy doesn't necessarily mean effectiveness and so i think warfare in many cases uh, will be urban right and because of what i just laid out in terms of accurate but not effective or not as effective it will be um just as uh destructive and bloody and deadly as it is today if not more so because i think as armies try and remove themselves from the battlefield, right? This idea of standoff warfare. I'm going to, I'm going to shoot you from really far away with long range precision fires. The more we do that, the less we have skin in the game or whomever it is that's doing that has skin in the game on the ground. 
And so the less you have skin in the game on the ground, physically in the environment in which you're shooting things, you're less prone to care about the destruction that happens in that environment, right? And you're also less attuned to it. You don't even see it and feel it and smell it, right? And so because of that, um, you'll continue to do what you do. And I think in large part, that's part of the reason you saw Mosul turn out the way that it did was because fires were coming from somewhere else, you know, and it wasn't necessarily our guys that were right up there up front, even though there were our guys right up there up front, but it was different. You know, we weren't the ones that were fighting. Uh, we were just advising. And so because of that, you know, the reluctance uh, wasn't there to not necessarily like, oh, let's flatten this city block as we move forward. And so I think in, in many regards, the the preference for long-range pre- precision strike is going to actually increase death and destruction because you don't have forces on the ground in there seeing that and experiencing what's going on. And then at the same time, it's also going to increase your use of proxy forces, right? And so the increased use of proxy forces also will drive attrition, right? Uh, because it's, it's a lot easier to send somebody else's people to go die than it is your own. And I think this is an important element with like Wagner Group. Wagner Group is a, or was a, Uh, auxiliary proxy force for the Russian army, right? So they were used as, going back to the meat shield term, and there was a a good paper that uh, Jack Watling and Nick Reynolds from uh, RUSI published several months ago when it was called Meat Grinder, and I forget the rest of the title. But it, it, it talked about that, and I forget exactly the term. I think it was disposable infantry was the term that they used to describe um, Wagner Group and how Wagner Group was used. And so they were used in that way to protect the Russian army, right? So if you grind up this force, but you protect your main force, right? It's almost like Napoleon's uh, Imperial Guard, you know? You you let the regular army go out and do all the uh, hard fighting, and then you keep the Imperial Guard back for whenever it is you actually, you know, need or want to use it. Um, same thing, too, with the, the, you know, the Donetsk and Luhansk people's republics, those armies that they have. Same thing, and that's why you see these bite and hold operations going on in the Donbass, like Evdivka, that's going on right now. Mm-hmm. Um, like the city's completely destroyed, you know. Uh, I don't know the casualty count on either side, but I know it's. Or I think I heard the other day, like two days ago, they said that an entire brigade, Russian brigade, was completely wiped out during the fight, right? And so I think that that is the future and i'm not saying that because i'm caught in presentism i think that um i think it's just the the aspirational ideals of this this futuristic battlefield it's unrealistic because it's it's cost prohibitive to so many states out there that only a few states are going to be able to do it and those states that can do it um by virtue of operating that way and not physically being able to or not physically going in and having their own people on the ground to the degree that you would otherwise is going to increase, um, you know, your, your proclivity to, to, to just go ahead and just fire the shots. Right. And if it's your own dudes moving forward, you're going to be a lot more cautious. If it's somebody else's or if it's your auxiliaries, you know, you're just going to be like, yeah, whatever. And so I think it's going to be urban, you know, the future war is going to be urban. It's going to be uh, very destructive. It's going to be uh, very slow and methodical. And I don't think you're going to see a lot of uh, a lot of this futuristic um, prophecy come true necessarily uh, because of that. 
Gotcha. All right, sir. With what time we have left, I want to get to the uh, the the fun questions. So, mm. what is your all time favorite book and why, sir? My all time favorite book. Is this like army book or just book in general? Any book, sir. I think that uh, so I I studied a lot of um, so I'm an education major. I was going to be a high school teacher and. Uh, high school football coach before I decided to come into the army. And so as part of that, I was a social studies uh, teacher. Um, and that's where my degree was. And as part of that, my focus area was in world civilization. And my focus area within that was on Russian history. And so I read a lot of Russian history and a lot of Russian literature as part of my undergrad studies. And then that's just something that I've continued to this day. And so my favorite book would have to be, um, Leo Tolstoy's The Death of Ivan Ilyich. Uh, and I think that it's just a, a very good book about uh, what it means to be a human being and to live uh, to live a life, you know. And then I think right behind that, too, um, would have to be, I know you said one, but I'm going to give you two because it's, it's a, it's a toss-up. But uh, Aldous Huxley, the guy that wrote Brave New World, uh, he had a, another book uh, that I think is absolutely phenomenal. And it's called After Many a Summer Dies the Swan. And it's about essentially this guy that, um, you know, this rich dude, and he wants to live forever and he does all these things. And at the end of it, he ends, like, he ends up devolving into like a, a monkey type person, but he ends up living forever. And it's about, you know, like what is a good life? Uh, you know, what is, and it's got all these people and they're at this retreat kind of thing and this big mansion and all this, you know, and it's just a, it's a really good story about uh, li- living a good life and, um, and keeping in mind what's important versus what's uh what's cool to have essentially gotcha yes sir yeah following you sir my reading list just keeps expanding and expanding and expanding but that's a that's a good problem <laughs> um all right moving on to yeah. like some mentorship uh development uh type questions sir so yeah. uh what's one thing that you know now that you wish you would have known as a as an iron major hmm you're going to have to give me a second on that one. Um, I think be a good teammate. I know that's probably very, um, that's like a softball. But for me personally, I'm not the best um, teammate. I'm a uh, get on, let's go because I'm going kind of guy. And if you're not getting on and going, then... Uh, then there's friction. And so that was something that I learned, um, is a, is a major was that, um, you know, sometimes you get to park your ego at the door and, uh, that's, that's challenging. And even now, I mean, I have the same problem now cause it's, I'm, I'm still the same way. I think you're hardwired with your personality. You can only tell yourself every now and then when you realize you're stepping over a line, like, Oh man, I better stop, you know? And so I think that's the big thing for me. Like, um, it's just, you know, like, hey, like sometimes you just need to chill out. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Yes, sir. All right. And then last question, sir. What emerging or future capability technology worries you the most? I think that the um, cyber side of things is underappreciated. I know everybody talks about it. And I'll say it from a so information. And again, this is there's nuance to what I'm saying. So information, not in the sense that everybody else talks about information. I think that 
so for instance, I think that the 18th Airborne Corps, they stood up the a data, what was it, a data warfare company. And I think that that, to me, that is that is the future of, of warfare too, is data, right? So data, you receive data, you transmit data, you do both actively and passively. And I think that if you can get inside somebody's data without them knowing that you're inside their data and manipulating their data in such a way that they don't know that they're getting bad data, um, and then this goes into where I think some technology, and again, I'm not an anti-technologist at all, so don't take anything I've said to this point to be that case at all. But I think this is where some technology could be very, very useful, right? The idea of spoofing and, and false indicators, especially as we, we rely on, uh, you know, all these digital command posts. And I know we're trying to get away from a lot of big, you know, footprints and whatnot, but at the same time, like, they're still there, <laughs> You know, so we, we, we've talked a lot about it, but we haven't really got away from it. And I think that data will be a, a, a pathway, if you will, that can be manipulated uh, in the future and even today, but in the future specifically to, um, to really affect war in outsized ways that I don't think we fully appreciate right now. And so I think that that, that is something, if you understand that you can, you know, poison data, you can corrupt data, uh, you can disrupt data, you can do all these different things with data, both actively and passively, right? And both in the cyber world, but then also in the physical world um, with, uh, you know, deception type things. Uh, I think that's really what I think is worth exploring in great detail that isn't perhaps getting the the attention in the way that it should be uh, right now. Gotcha. All right, sir. Well, um, any final comments, any last word, anything? Uh, the only thing is just thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Uh, it's been uh, a pleasure chatting with you and, uh, I hope your podcast does well. And I hope that the, uh, force management field appreciates what you're doing for them. Yes, sir. Well, again, yeah. Thank you very much for your time. As always, you know, I, I, I appreciate it. I learn learn something new every time. So thanks again, sir. Thank you, Matt.